0: Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed.
1: The footing on the side of the crater was lousy, soft sand and loose pebbles, but my legs weren't damaged, and I got up to the top with both humans still alive. Valescu tried to collapse, and I coaxed him away from the edge a few meters, just in case whatever was down there had a longer reach than it looked. I didn't want to put Baradwaj down because something in my abdomen was severely damaged, and I wasn't sure I could pick her up again. I ran my field camera back a little and saw I had gotten stabbed with a tooth, or maybe a cilia. Did I mean a cilia or was that something else? They don't give murder bots decent education modules on anything except murdering.
0: You just heard actor and 2023 Golden Voice, Kevin R. Free narrating All Systems Red. It's the first book of the wildly successful Murderbot series written by Martha Wells. And Kevin is the narrator of all of them, picking up Earphones Awards along the way. In fact, Kevin R. Free is a perennial Earphones Award winner and in a variety of books, from children's titles to juvenile fiction to literary fiction, non-fiction, even poetry. There are few narrators that can match his versatility and perceptive readings across genres, and no one brings more infectious energy and pure joy to books for young listeners. Kevin R. Free has an extraordinary career, both in the recording booth with some 450 titles to his credit, and on the stage as an actor, a director, a playwright, and Artistic Director, not of one, but two theaters. Kevin and I spoke soon after the Golden Voice Awards were announced. Here's our conversation, and it's one I will not forget anytime soon. Well, Kevin, first of all, congratulations on being named a Golden Voice by Audiophile Magazine.
1: Oh, thank you, Joe. I would be lying if I didn't say it is an honor that I had wished for for a few years, so... I'm so, so, so grateful and so happy.
0: I really would like to go back a little bit and I want to know when did you begin to perform and what drew you to theater?
1: Oh, wow. Thank you for asking about theater. Let's see. I trained as a singer. I was classically trained as a singer in high school and I was, you know, seeing an opera coach and whatever. And my brother, my older brother, was an actor and was in plays, and I just wanted to be just like him. That was why I started acting in theater, because my brother was doing it so well. I had done small musicals in school before, but watching my brother be such a great actor made me want to be great. So I would say I was 15, 16 years old when I really caught the bug, and uh, that's, that's how it started.
0: Now, how did you begin... To narrate audiobooks. How did you get into the audiobook biz?
1: Yeah, audiobooks, they were such a surprise. So it's important to note that in 2000, I was doing a show on stage and I was sick and I was singing in this show and I could tell something happened to my voice. And what I found out a few weeks later was that I had burst a blood vessel on my vocal cords and had a polyp. And I eventually went on vocal rest for six weeks and then had surgery to remove the polyp. After that was when I booked my first audiobook, and that was in the fall of 2000. Now, I had been auditioning for audiobooks. I had a couple of auditions, like in 1999, and I thought I was great, and I was told I was great, and nothing happened, nothing materialized. And then I auditioned again after I had this vocal surgery, after I relearned how to speak and sing from a vocal therapist, and I booked my very first audiobook through Recorded Books, who still continues to employ me all these years later.
0: You began, didn't you, narrating children's books?
1: That was not the beginning. Oh, the beginning? Okay. Yeah, the beginning was urban romance. That's how it began. And then somewhere along the line, uh, there was a director at Recorded Books who said to me, You know, you have such range. I think they want you to do more educational and children's books. And then it happened, and I started doing more children's books. I think the first notice that I received that was really, really good was for Dizzy, which I, I loved when you played a, a clip of that when you announced that I was a Golden Voice Award winner. So Dizzy was the one of the first books that people loved that I did. But ar- around the same time, around 2004, I also did the narration of The Known World by Edward P. Jones, which later won a Pulitzer Prize. So I've been really fortunate. Uh, People see me in different ways for different publishers, and I've done all kinds of very interesting things and none more interesting than what I'm doing uh, in the past three years.
0: Let's back up. If we talk about Dizzy just for a second, what is it that you have to bring to narrating children's books that other books might not require?
1: Well, with everything I do, I I try to find the joy in what I'm doing, even if it's a very serious book. But with children's books, it's joy front and center. The thing that I say in general about audiobooks when people ask me, what is the most important thing you think about? And I say, well, like Celine Dion... I feel like I have to embody the character of the book as I'm doing it. And I say that because Celine Dion once very famously said that she just sort of embodies the character of a song. And that's how she is able to sing songs. And I thought that that was both brilliant and hilarious. And so now I say, like Celine Dion, I like to embody the character of a book. And with children's books, even if they're books that are teaching a lesson about loneliness or grief, there is joy to them there's such joy in the illustrations and because people are listening to the when you know the young people are listening to the book unless they're listening to it in a class they can't see the illustrations so i try to paint a picture with my voice and use as much joy as possible as i'm doing that new york broke all the rules just like dizzy just like jazz it never went to sleep People were up all night playing music and dancing. And there was Dizzy, horn beneath his arm, soaking it in, the rumble and the roar of the A-train and the brass and the saxes and the drums of the jazz clubs. And there was Dizzy, up on stage with the best
0: jazz band of them all. Well, your range is astounding. There's no question about that. Thank you. We see it in all your work. How do you think your theater training has helped you with audiobook narration?
1: My theater training has been instrumental in my audiobook career. And I will say that it's not just the things that I did in school. It is the experiences I've had with my colleagues, my other directors, other actors, other writers. I performed with a wildly prolific group of artists called the neo-futurists, where we were writing and performing and directing all of our own very short plays. And we're all very opinionated people, and we have very strong points of view about the work that we're creating. And so, for me, the, that theatrical training helped me to first not be precious about the work as an audiobook narrator, And being really good with directors who are helping me with my interpretation of the books. And also just being able to look at a book and read the book and know what the point of view of the book is. And again, embody what the book is about. Because more important to me than the characters is what the narrator's voice in the book is. Are they sardonic? Are they hilarious? Do they think they're hilarious? Are they nerdy? What is the narrator's point of view? And that is really important to me when I do an audiobook. And I think theater taught me that.
0: You've done the Murderbot series by Martha Wells. You've done all three of Brandon Taylor's books, including the very recent, The Late Americans. I do want to talk about each of those books in turn, but I wonder if the author is living, do you try to connect with her or him before you begin to narrate?
1: I do, I do. There are a few publishers who require it. Back in the days when I was on Twitter, Martha Wells and I had a really great relationship on Twitter, but we also email each other. When I read a new book, because she's so good with creating names, I email her a list of names and say, "How do you pronounce these?" I think it's this, and you know, I remember my first one of my first questions to Martha Wells was, "What are Murderbot's pronouns?" And Martha Wells wrote back emphatically its pronoun is it. And it was so emphatic that I thought, ah, this is great that this murder bot knows itself. And I start from there with Murderbot. With Brandon Taylor, the brilliant Brandon Taylor, uh, we have had, a, uh, had robust, again, Twitter conversations. And most recently on Instagram when I was asking about some pronunciations there but i remember as we were reading real life i didn't have any relationship with brandon and as the director maureen Monterubio and i were recording the book i remember thinking i hope he's okay <laughs> because i wasn't <laughs> sure if the book was autobiographical but i thought gosh i hope brandon taylor is okay just the books are so moving and they put you through so many changes
0: They certainly do. And I I want to talk about his books in a second. I want to go back to Murderbot, because I'm very curious. When you first got the pages for the first Murderbot book, what went through your mind when you realized you were a robot who was the narrator of this book?
1: Well, I knew Murderbot was a a robot because when Recorded Books reached out, a producer there named Andy Paris—I'm not sure he's there now— but Andy Paris reached out and said, hey, would you like to play a robot? And I wrote back, sure, send me send me the, the text and we'll talk about it. And I started reading it and I wasn't sure I was reading a robots words, but I was so taken with the idea that this entity just wanted to be left alone is called a murder bot and did do terrible things. But. I was so interested in in watching Murderbot—I'm trying not to do spoilers—but watching and reading Murderbot trying to clear its name, and also, at the same time, Murderbot just wanting to be left alone. I was taken with the personality there and being a part of a story where an entity whose pronoun is it becoming more human or discovering that it has feelings that it doesn't want to have. (laughs) It was very exciting to me.
0: So Murderbot has evolved over these books, and you need to convey that, but it's still Murderbot. And that takes a lot of subtlety to be able to do that.
1: Uh, Thank you for saying that. Um, Subtlety has never been my strong suit. (laughs) So if, if, if you think it's subtle, then I'm going to say... That is what I was trying to do, and I'm glad that it's subtle. When I realized that, that these Murderbot books are coming-of-age stories for Murderbot, that was when I was able to really clue into some of that subtlety, some of the places where it becomes more human and starts to accept its more organic parts of itself. I think that's the, my best description of the book, and one of the thoughts that I hold in my head is that Murderbot is coming-of-age and becoming more itself in the same way that we all are constantly becoming ourselves. I'm glad that it's coming through. I'd removed the blood and fluid from my clothes back on ship in the cleaning unit in its passenger restroom, but there hadn't been anything on board to fix the projectile and shrapnel holes. Fortunately, the jacket I was wearing was dark and the holes weren't that visible, and the shirt collar was just high enough to cover the disabled data port in the back of my neck. Normally that wasn't a problem, as most humans had never seen a sec unit without armor and would assume the port was just an augment. If the humans who had diverted ship were after me, they probably knew that a sec unit without armor would look like an augmented human. Possibly I was overthinking this? I do that. It's the anxiety that comes with being a part organic murder bot.
0: Is it a challenge to narrate the action sequences?
1: Those are so exciting. (laughs) Yes, it's always a challenge, but it's so much fun to be able to, again, paint the picture of the fights and to add my imagination to Martha Wells' imagination about these fights. So, yes, it's a challenge because sometimes I get a little too loud and have to go back and redo some of the things, but I love the challenge. It is uh, so exciting to me. I tell you... I'm so busy with audiobooks that, and because I have to read a certain amount of plays in my job as an artistic director and theater director, I don't get to read much for pleasure anymore unless it's recipes. And reading these books has become the most delightful job of my life. So I get very excited to do all of the books that I record because I get to read and I get to add my imagination to what is already on the page so yes the, the action sequences are challenging but they're so exciting to do I feel like I am making a movie with my voice
0: well I want to talk about creating voices and I want to begin with the late Americans I get what you're saying about subtlety because you can really bring it when you need to but the late Americans there is such nuance in your narration of that book And I'm so curious about how you created the voices for that, because the point of view shifts from chapter to chapter, and a minor character in one chapter becomes the point of view of the next chapter. So in general, what's your process for determining the voice for any given character? And most particularly, how did you do it for the late Americans?
1: Well, this is where I talk about how Ethan Donaldson, my director, had such a strong hand and a steady hand on the wheel of my performances. I make decisions based on what other characters say about the characters. So this is another thing I do in theaters, is, is if a character is off stage and another character is talking about the other character, I make notes about how they describe them and and then make decisions about whether they're true or not. And then with each of the characters in Late Americans, the clues about where they were from and what their parents were like and all of those things, I make lists about where they come from. And then from there, I just make up a voice that might match what that is. And... When I'm doing a book that is so literary, like Brandon Taylor, it is important for me to have a director that I can bounce ideas off of. And so when we were doing The Late Americans, I would try a voice, and Ethan Donaldson a couple of times, (laughs) a couple of times he would say, yeah, that's too much. Yeah, no, he sounds dumb. You can't do that. (laughs) How about you pull it back just a little bit here? And so with The Late Americans, the establishing of of the characters became really, really important. And going back to do them was also very important. And a note about the subtlety of late Americans, somewhere along the line, I realized that I was whispering sometimes into the microphone, that there were times when I was performing the book. And because it's such a wonderful book, it led me to go to those places. So yes, again, I will tell you that subtlety is not my strong suit, But what I think happened with The Late Americans was that I had such a brilliant director and I know Brandon's work, so I have have this intimacy with the work. And because this book was so adult, I really was able to take a deep breath and not rush anything and embody the subtlety of those characters. It would have been easier for these poets to say that sometimes you lied and sometimes you were mistaken and sometimes the truth changed on you in the course of telling. That sometimes trauma reconfigured your relationship both to the truth and to the very apparatus of telling. But no, they went on signifying, tethering their bad ideas to recognized names and hoping someone would call them smart, call them sharp, call them radical and right. Call them a poet and a thinker and a mind, even if they were just children.
0: Well, the book is very adult, and it has a fair amount of sex, which
1: is quite explicit. So was that
0: challenging? Was that fun? Was that difficult to narrate? All of it?
1: The sex in the book, yes, it is explicit, but it didn't seem gratuitous in any way. Not at all. And so for me, the sex was so real— and when I was recording, I wasn't in a studio. I was in my home studio. My director was uh, on another side of a microphone or, you know, in another burrow from me. So there was no embarrassment about doing it, and there weren't any jokes made while we are doing it. I've done sex scenes before, and, you know, that it always sort of leads to some, like, funny jokes. But the sex scenes felt so real and so... Hardcore in a way that does what Brandon Taylor does with people. Like he eviscerates people. (laughs) Oh yes, he does. You you know, and you just see their guts everywhere. They they all have such big emotions, and often they're not expressing those emotions. And so, what was interesting about the late Americans was that when they were having sex with each other, you were seeing some of their. You were seeing these people broken down to their ids, to their what is most base about themselves and so i guess to answer your question it was fun and also daunting because i didn't want it to seem like i was doing anything gratuitous
0: right because there's very little joy in that book
1: <laughs> yeah. yes
0: which is an understatement is... i
1: realize <laughs> yes there is very little joy in that book but what i'll tell you what i what i like to think about is I am a person who I'm sort of made of joy. Even in my most sad or or grief-stricken moments, I am able to make a joke or to feel what the good is in the world or in my life. And so rather than coming from a place of judgment about the joy and about these characters, which is, I think, where I was after reading Brandon's first book, Real Life, when we were very concerned about his safety... I was able now, because I know his work, to to look at these characters and think, what we're seeing is the most existential and angsty these characters are at, at this time in their lives, and that before this and after this, and, and there are some moments that we don't know about during which they feel joy. And recognizing that they are full humans, I was able to also, I was able to do the book without judging them in that way and also it was such a joy to record the book that i think it comes through in the narration of the book that i just really loved having this kind of material to sink my teeth into
0: okay i'm going to do a 180 now because i want to talk about the endless reserves of voices and accents you had for the book of fatal errors
1: oh wow
0: which is a book i found so charming (laughs) Oh, boy. And fun and delightful. That was just a tour de force.
1: <laughs> oh, Joe Reed, you just... Oh, I love the Book of Fatal Errors. Me too. I love Dashka Slater's work. Oh, thank you so much for recognizing it. When I read that book, before I recorded it, I felt I'm not a biracial person, right? I am all Black. <laughs> as, as far as anybody can be, all Black in the United States. But... I felt so seen when I read that book, when I was prepping it. I felt so seen by that author. And I just felt so honored to record that story. And there's a sequel, too. Right. Um, And I hope that there's another one. So The Endless Reserve of Voices, I don't know what to say about that except thank you. I really loved doing that book because it felt like... I had never read a book that was intentionally multiracial about fairies and about kids and about grandparents and about family. I had never read anything like that. And the book means the world to me because of how it is such a tribute to these blended families. And I don't know how I created those voices except I saw them all in my head. And just said, okay, this one has crazy hair. What does that sound like? This one is haughty. What does that sound like? I think my favorite character in that is I can't remember what he's called, but he falls in love with Abigail, one Old of the yes. lead main characters. Yes. And he calls, oh my and,
0: god. It's so <laughs> sweet.
1: Yes, and he calls her Abigail. Abigail. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Oh, boy. I'm so glad you mentioned this book. It just makes me so happy when I think about it. And that was a book that I, that I self-recorded. I didn't work with a director on that book. Wow. And, and it just was so much fun to do. Gosh, there are some characters that you just, and some experiences that you wish went on and on and on and on and on. And Book of Fatal Errors and Dashka Slater, I count among those Um along with Murderbot and doing the books of Brandon Taylor. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, boy. You no, just not at day. all. I'm
0: not done talking about it either. Um, <laughs> because, you know, in that book, we have our protagonist, Rufus, who's a kid. And we have goblins and we have failings who are fairy-like creatures. A boulder who, who's talking. I mean, a human who's not quite human, you know, who has robotic parts. So all that is going on. But there's also real moments of family tension and emotion. So it couldn't be so much over the top because those feelings have to be real to us as the listeners. And they were.
1: Oh, that! thank you.
0: So you really had to balance that.
1: Yes. And when you have such beautiful material, while it is a challenge, it is not hard. I think some of these writers really lead me by the hand and and send me down the road to good narration. And The Book of Fatal Errors is one of those books. I think The Book of Fatal Errors, because it is so heartwarming and because it is so vibrant, you can see the colors coming off the page of that book. It was, easy is never the right word, but it was really, no, I will say it was easy even if it was not effortless. How about that?
0: Good distinction.
1: Grandpa Jack's hurt, he said. We need to get to Phelon. I don't understand, Rufus said during the drive across town. How did he break his arm? He fell. His dad ran a hand over the uncombed clumps of his wavy brown hair. But how did he fall? Grandpa Jack wasn't the falling type. Rufus had never seen him lose his footing, not even when jumping from stone to stone while crossing the creek at Phelon. According to Mom, he stepped through some rotting floorboards in the barn. His dad glanced over at Rufus and raised his eyebrows, as if to add italics to the statement. And since phones don't work up there, he had to drive himself to the emergency room. If Mom hadn't showed up for her shift just as he was leaving the hospital, we might not even know. What rotting floorboards? Rufus asked. I was just in the barn last week. I didn't see any... It's Phelon, Rufus. Don't try to make sense of it. I wanted, and, and most of the time when I'm recording the books, almost all the time when I'm recording books, I want to do right by the author. I think all the time I want to do right by the author. But there are some times when when the author's brilliance and my life intentions or the, the things that I believe about the world meet, they align. The Venn diagram is like, you know, (laughs) two circles on top of each other. Uh, um, And I just wanted to be so wonderful doing the book. And as I said, I don't do a lot of reading for pleasure, reading books for pleasure anymore. So all of the narration that i do is quite a pleasure because i get to read and when you're a middle-aged person you don't always get to read books about young people or exactly. or people don't think that that's what that's the, those are the books that you should read you know you should get this kind of book for the beach and you should get this kind of book for your brain and i say the juvenile fiction titles fill me with such joy and purpose and The Book of Fatal Errors is just one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, and, and mine too. I just loved every single minute of it. Thank you. How is acting with your voice, Kevin, different from having your physicality to use when you create a character?
1: Well, if you could see the, my movement in the booth when I'm doing certain characters, <laughs> I think you would say there's no difference, Kevin. There's no difference. Because I move a lot what I can say is that I learned a lot from watching our dear departed Katie Kelgren perform. We did a set of books together, The Kane Chronicles by Rick Reardon back in 2010, 2011, and 2012, I think. And watching her embody characters as I stood outside the booth, I now think about her every time I'm doing a big character. And what I saw Katie doing was creating a character that was a huge character on stage and then making her arms not move and focusing all of that energy through her voice. And that is what I try to do when I'm doing a character that I know is wild and crazy. I think about what he or she or it looks like and moves like and how they would move their head. And I do all of that, but then I have to try to keep absolutely still and focus all of that through my voice.
0: Well, you just have your voice. I don't mean just in that way, but it's it's your voice. The toolbox is smaller, but you have a far greater range of characters you can play narrating an audiobook.
1: And I think that is the other reason why I have such joy as I do it. There are so many characters in the American theater that I will never play, that I know about, that I, that I probably will not ever play. But with audiobooks, I get to expand what we think of as things that are playable by a middle-aged Black queer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clearly describing myself. And and so not having my body to do it, there's a luxury because I can create the look of the body. Like, whenever somebody describes a certain kind of character, I know what the base voice is. So, like, if somebody's a frat guy, I know he talks like this, right? He talks like this. This is where we begin. It's like two dimensional, and this is the voice, right? And then I start to whittle away from that as I learn more about the character, and I'm left with something that is a little more human, something that's a little more full. But I start with a base character and a base physicality and then just whittle away at that big theatrical thing until it is just the voice without any of the extra bells and whistles.
0: Let me ask you this, because theater is so collaborative. You're in a community of players. You're either the director, you're guided by a director, you're working with actors. Um, With audiobooks, you're recording in a booth working with a director, perhaps, or a producer, but it's on you. Can you talk about the difference between doing it alone and doing a play in the company of others?
1: Yes, I can talk about that. Because lately I have been spending more time as a director of theater, I am able to take all of the spirits in the room and create harmony because we're listening to one another and listening to one another about what each moment means and what each character is thinking at this time. And that feels really wonderful and collaborative because we are, we are working as a community to solve a puzzle, to put together a puzzle. And I really love that. I inform my work with audiobooks as a director by reading the book, especially if it's a book that's character-driven, reading the book and thinking about how all of these characters fit into the larger puzzle and it is different. And I love having a director because a director can tell me, okay, that's a little too theater. That's a little too much. But when I don't have a director, I really focus in on the kind of book that it is and When I reach out to the author to get pronunciations or the publisher to get pronunciations, I ask some leading questions about how the author was inspired to write the book and what it all means to them. Are there any politics involved with this? Where is the narrator's voice supposed to be? But at the end of the day, when I get in the booth, I'm by myself and I like to spend the first three or four minutes recording the first part of the book, and then listening back and saying, okay, I think I'm on the right track with this, but I'm not sure, so that I can hear what I'm already thinking about the book and see if, if how it sounds sounds like what I think it sounds like in my head, if that makes sense.
0: It does. Pacing is also so important to the audio experience. In all books, but especially a book like The Last Slave Ship by Ben Rains which is nonfiction. It's a long, complicated story. What was your process for figuring that out?
1: For The Last Slave Ship, well, the story was relevant to my interests. As I was reading it and reading how he was searching for this ship and the community of people around that area in Alabama, I was fascinated by the mystery of it. There were also places where I, as a Black person, or just as a human, was outraged by the story of this last slave ship, this actual ship that came to the United States after the transatlantic slave trade was abolished. So I had to pull myself back because it's it's a journalistic story. There's not a lot of editorializing that Ben Reins does because he's a journalist. So I had to balance the mystery of finding the ship with the outrage that I personally felt about the ship even existing and what was happening to that community. To the nation at large, the story of the arrival of the last enslaved Africans on the Clotilda was little more than a historical footnote. Around Mobile, Alabama, where many of the Clotilda's passengers ended up living after emancipation, the story had, conveniently for some, come to be treated as myth. Without the shipwreck, people said there was no proof the story was true. That remained the case until April 9th, 2018, when after an extensive search, I dove underwater in scuba gear and came up holding the first piece of Clotilda to see the light of day in 160 years. So so with the pacing of that book, I had to really think about slowing myself down so that I wasn't overwhelming the reader with all of the information that I already knew as I was telling it. I think about this a lot just in my personal life. I get very passionate about things, and I start yelling. <laughs> I start sounding a little bit hysterical because I'm I'm very passionate about things. And I was just saying to myself yesterday, I wish that I could just be more zen all the time. And... I feel that when I have the words in front of me, it is easier for me to calibrate. Am I going fast here? Am I going slower here? How do I do this? But I will say that it was difficult with The Last Slave Ship because sometimes I wanted to speak so fast and so passionately that I had to redo some of a lot of my narration of that book.
0: It really was a great narration that served that story perfectly, I thought. Thank you. You are deeply involved with theater. As an actor, mostly as a director, as a playwright, an artistic director, an audiobook narrator with, what, 450 books under your belt. So I have two questions, and the first is, how's that work-life balance working for you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Today is the opening night of my theater's annual benefit, seventh inning stretch. So as soon as you and I are finished, I am going to gather my clothes and my bow tie and and my scripts and my backpack and my lunch. And I'm going to drive to Hoboken, New Jersey, to my theater, Mile Square Theater, to get ready for opening night of this annual benefit, which incidentally is seven, 10-minute plays about baseball. And tomorrow night is our big gala benefit. So I will tell you that the work-life balance is not very balanced today.
0: (laughs) Okay, the second part of that question is, then how do you choose what projects to take on? And I'm thinking mostly about audiobooks in this case. How do you choose which books to narrate given how much you have to do?
1: So I am really fortunate Right now, to be offered books that are almost always relevant to my interests and really interesting. So, turning down a book is really difficult because I often get offers that are really exciting and really cool. So, because I have a robust theater schedule, for instance, when I'm finished with this benefit next week, I'm directing a reading and going on a retreat for the weekend. And then, two weeks. After that, I'm going out of town to direct a play and I do a lot of remote recording. But in that two weeks between the reading that I'm directing next week and going out of town to direct a play, I will be recording a couple of books that I have in my calendar already. So I think I am able to accept the, the offers that I receive because, A... I love everything that's offered to me, and B, I have a wonderful manager who helps deal with my schedule. So sometimes he'll send me something and say, hey, should we pass on this? Because it looks like you have to do this one book that is estimated 22 hours in those 40 hours that you have (laughs) in in that one week. So maybe we should say no to this. And then I'll say to him often, no, 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 I can do it. I can do it and then somewhere somewhere along the line we talk and agree and figure out a schedule. A lot of times publishers will give me a deadline and then if it's a quick turnaround, I'm able to ask if there's any flexibility on the deadline and sometimes there is. When I recorded the Late Americans, I recorded it over 3 Mondays, which are generally which are, you know, the accepted day off for the theater. And I was able to travel from where I was working back to my home studio. And I recorded three Mondays in a row to get that book done. So publishers are really good with working with my schedule. And I am really good at <laughs> at playing Time Tetris so that I can get <laughs> things done.
0: <laughs> What's the best
1: part of audiobook narration for you? Oh, Well, right now it's, it's, it's winning a Golden Voice Award. <laughs> getting the thing that I've wanted for so long. The greatest thing about, about audiobook narration for me is because I get to do so many different kinds of books that it feels like the audiobook world recognizes the fullness of my humanity. And as a human who likes to recognize the fullness of each person I meet, it feels as though the audiobook community sees me as a multifaceted human and artist. So I'll tell you my favorite part of audiobook narration is is how embraced I feel by our community. It feels like I belong here and I never, ever want to leave.
0: And of course, the last question is, which, which you alluded to, is what it means for
1: you to be named a Golden Voice. It means everything. It means everything. I work so hard. I work so hard and I watch some of these other amazing golden voices on the list and listen to them and listen to how easy they make it sound and how they change me when I listen to their work. And it just sort of feels like confirmation that I might do a fraction of what they do for me. So it means the world to me.
0: Well, Kevin, it's so well-deserved. It truly is. And you have all my congratulations. And many, many thanks for giving me your time on this very busy day for you.
1: Oh, no. No worries. No worries at all. This is more fun than the commute. So I appreciate you.
0: Oh, thank you. (laughs) That was 2023 Golden Voice, Kevin R. Free. You can keep up with him at kevinrfree.com. And you can find reviews for all of the books that we discussed, in fact, for all of Kevin's books, at audiophilemagazine.com. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.